Living in the uniquely American state of Montana, as I do, when you listen to people describe themselves, when they go about this process of trying to find the words that will convey the truth of themselves, you know, beyond their jobs, beyond their address, beyond even what they drive, among the very first words you're likely to hear is free. Now, the idea of freedom. This idea is there at the core of how most people here, including myself, it's there at the core of how we define ourselves. It's part of what makes us and likely the vast majority of Americans and, and the vast majority of people around the globe. This idea is there at the core of what we believe ourselves to be, what we want ourselves to be. And it's a quality without which it, all the rest of the pieces, all the other descriptions, all the other ideas, all the words and the values that we stick together to try and create a picture of ourselves, all these other aspects of ourselves would matter much less. Maybe they wouldn't matter at all if it weren't for this central, overarching idea of freedom that ties everything else together. Having freedom and getting freedom and keeping freedom – these concepts are more than what we see in our laws. They're more than what we read in our histories. These ideas, in whatever form, and that takes a lot of different forms, but these ideas constitute both a founding and a guiding, I don't know whether you'd say a mythology or an ethos or some combination of both, but they're there as, as centrally important notions for most of the people I know. And, of course, for most Americans and for most of, most of the people around the globe. But, of course, I should add an asterisk there because I have no claim whatsoever to knowing what the majority of people on Earth think about anything. But I think you get my basic point. And with that admission out of the way, my name is Corey DiBiase, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to A Freedom of Ideas. This is Episode 1, Our Prolegomena. Now, of course, I could have just said introduction instead of prolegomena so that everyone listening to me would know what I was talking about, but introduction isn't exactly the right word, and probably more to the point, it's pretty rare that I find myself with an opportunity to use the word prolegomena, to, to, you know, to say it out loud. Well, here I am, I've got my shot, and I'm taking it. Now, as we've noted, freedom can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Why I value freedom, how I use it, what I can, will, or must do to protect it, all of that, for me, will be different than it is for you, and for the next person, and for the next. And there's nothing wrong with that, obviously, right? That's the system working like it should. We're supposed to think differently. We're supposed to have different values and take different actions to live by those values. Otherwise, what would it mean to be free? Or why would we bother being free if all freedom looked the same? But there is a problem with this. Now, while I think that we'd agree that any notion of freedom must include the possibility of variations in how we define that freedom, I wonder if most of us really have the tools that we need to explain our particular vision of freedom, and to explore that vision, and perhaps even to test that vision to make sure that all these impulses and instincts that we associate with freedom actually make sense and actually create the kind of freedom that we want them to, both for ourselves and for other people. 
Now, we may revere freedom. We may talk about freedom, or at least we may say the word a lot. But are we capable of critically analyzing the idea and really understanding its role in our lives? And there's something we need to take note of here, and you might call this the irony of most any theory of freedom. No matter how I define freedom for myself, that definition is going to have an impact on you, or at least it's going to have an impact on the people that I come in contact with. My notion of freedom, my definition of what that word means, my decisions about how that notion will then guide and shape my actions and my choices, and my expectations for how others ought to behave in relation to me, my personal definition of freedom simply must have an impact on pretty much every person I interact with. Think of it this way. My behavior, my actions, my speech, my overall comportment, everything about me that is external, but which reflects my internal choices, All of that is a mixture of instances where I'm primarily honoring my own personal preferences, where, you know, where I'm doing what I want, and instances where I am making concessions to the preferences of others. Now, maybe those concessions are a matter of legality. Uh, You know, maybe my truest, most free self tells me to throw a brick through that window and hear how it sounds which, of course, I'm not going to do. Uh, but maybe those, those concessions equally. Maybe they're just a matter of, of my being considerate, behaving in a way that I don't strictly have to, that I'm not required to, but that I prefer to do, so that I minimize the extent to which I impinge on other people. This line is there for all of us, this line between our assertiveness and our acquiescence, Uh, this line between where we act, speak, and live as we please, and the things that we do or do not uh, dare to say because we recognize that we want to control our impact on others. This line, in essence, is how we define our personal freedom. And of course, it shifts and it changes based on our circumstances, based on our mood, based on all these various factors that we can't even define completely. But broadly, for most of us, I I think we can say that there's a fairly consistent trend of where we draw this line and thus how we practically define our personal freedom. All of which means that at the heart of the notion of freedom is this counterbalancing and complementary notion of responsibility. Now, we might consider responsibility and freedom to be at odds with one another, but I really think we can see that in our day-to-day lives uh, that, that the notions of freedom and responsibility are mutually defining, meaning we can't really have one without having the other. So, for example, if we have nothing but responsibility, if we have no freedom at all, if we've crossed this line into which, you know, which we can no longer really even be called free, well, without freedom, then we're not, if we're not in any way free, then we're not actually responsible in the way that we typically take this phrase to mean. Alternately, freedom without any notion of responsibility, and we're going to talk about this a bit more, but Really, if this is freedom at all, it's what I call abject freedom. It's, it's the freedom of a spoiled child. In fact, it's less than that, because even a child is going to have some notion of other people built into their behavior and into their notion of, of how they should act, how they will, how they cannot act. Whatever we call it, I don't think we can seriously argue that freedom, real desirable freedom, not just for ourselves, but for everyone— 
can exist in the absence of some notion of responsibility. Which is why, when I define my own freedom, I'm just as much making a decision for you as I am for myself. And, in a sense, you're doing exactly the same thing at exactly the same time. Anyone who's watched a Western will be aware of the kind of legend of the American West. But here in Montana, which again is where I live, and if the accent seems not to track, I'm originally from New Jersey, but in any event, here in Montana, that legend of the frontiers and of the pioneers and of all the rest of it, it's not just a legend yet. It's not just history or mythology. So much of that existence is still here with us in our day-to-day lives. Not like it used to be, of course, but some trace of it remains in many people's actual day-to-day lives and, more importantly, in their livelihoods. Of course, the rough edges have been smoothed down, but the echo is still there. My wife is a descendant of homesteaders. So on occasion, we'll go work sheep for a friend who owns one of these original homestead ranches. Uh, We'll be out there on these long prairies that the pioneers first bent to cultivation. We'll stand where they stood. We'll do the work that they did. Or, I mean, at least something similar to it, something that is now slightly more technologically advanced, somewhat more uh, efficient. But in any event, I assume the landscape hasn't changed that much and probably neither have the sheep. So it's hard when you're standing out there not to feel the echo of those earlier lives. However faint, however distant, those lives, those people are there, almost whispering to us. And these are people who, and and for, uh, for a moment, never mind the idea of freedom, never mind the concept, never mind the philosophy. These are people who sometimes had nothing but freedom and maybe some land to be free upon. So what did that mean? Well, no regulations, not so many fences, not so many property lines, no one to tell you what to do or not to do, of course, as long as you weren't doing anything to them, no planning boards, no PTO meetings, then sometimes no shelter, sometimes no food, sometimes no water, Sometimes no way home through the storm that came on too suddenly. Sometimes no way to save the animals, the sheep, the cattle, their livelihood. No way to save those animals from being buried alive in the snow. Sometimes needing to find a way to be thankful to have even saved yourself. So we're here talking about this idea of freedom, this abstract philosophical notion. For these people, freedom was an absolute notion. And it was a freedom of sudden and absolute consequences. These days, it's harder to lose a herd, even if it's not impossible. It's harder to get lost on the prairie with a GPS-enabled cell phone. And it's easier to get home through the storm in the cab of a heated pickup. And there are more rules and more government types to enforce them. But that history is still with us in the old stories, in the way that that work is done every day, or maybe just in the air, maybe just in the emptiness of this place. And it's in our books, and it's in our movies, and it's in our histories, and it's in our, our national character, and in some of our most basic assumptions. The echoes of a kind of freedom that simply can no longer exist. 
But when you ask my neighbors today, when you ask my neighbors about their politics, you might just be told that they believe in freedom. And past that, there's not that much more to say. And of course, there's something important to that. The word, the idea of freedom, it carries tremendous meaning, tremendous association, tremendous history and emotion and aspiration and knowledge of sacrifice. For some, it carries the memory of sacrifice in their own lives and in the lives of their family members. Now, I don't doubt that when most people talk about freedom, all of this, in a way, it's, it's in there. It's woven into what they mean. All of this and likely much more that I can't imagine and that maybe they wouldn't even be able to exactly explain. All of this is wrapped up in that word and it's felt in the sound of it. It's assumed. It's tacit. In, and in a way, perhaps it's, it's not exactly offensive, but, but would you say it's, it's gauche, it's classless, it's, it's clueless, if you will, to need to say more about this idea. Maybe for a lot of people, this is the kind of idea that doesn't need to be talked about, that should not be talked about too much. Now, what I mean is that perhaps for many people, it's not only simply understood, it actually ought to be. It should be simply understood. Maybe going on about it all day runs the risk of cheapening the idea. I mean, after all, the hero in a Western, they're never chatty, right? But alas, when it comes to the idea of freedom and what it means in our minds and in our lives and in our society, well, going on about it all day is exactly what we're doing here, if I can at least lay one card on the table. Because I think we do ourselves, and I think we do this idea of freedom, I think we do both ourselves and this idea a disservice when we fail to explore that idea in greater detail. I don't think it's sufficient just to say the word and hope that we'll all agree on what it means and what it implies, and how it should live in our daily existence. Freedom is too important not to explore, on every level and in every way that we can. Because freedom isn't simple, right? When we look at history, or philosophy, or art, when we look at our stories, and our novels, and our poems, and our movies, so much thought, so many words have been poured into this idea. Centuries of legal scholarship have struggled to define freedom. Philosophy, as we'll soon see, uh, philosophy has struggled to even be certain that freedom can exist at all. Never, never mind on trying to understand what it actually looks like. Most of us on a purely personal level have been struggling since we could crawl to figure out exactly what it means to be free when we also have to account for the freedom of the other people around us. So what are we doing here? In this podcast, we're going to try to better understand freedom from a wide variety of perspectives, from the philosophical to the practical. We're going to ask a bunch of questions. We're going to learn everything we can from any source that we can get our hands on. And we're going to get some big, serious names involved to help us. And we're going to play with some ideas that sometimes maybe will seem silly, but that I hope you'll see will help us better understand this magnificent, beautiful, confusing, and sometimes contradictory idea. Now, if I haven't convinced you yet 
that this idea needs, and, and I, I use that word very intentionally, this idea needs to be explored precisely and thoughtfully. Let's pause to think about the role, actually one very specific role, that the idea of freedom has played in American history. And again, I, I, I know that freedom is not a uniquely American concept. I know that we didn't invent the aspiration of liberty. We're not the only ones who grew up with it as defining aspects of our national and personal character. But of course, when I talk about the American experience, I do so because it is my experience, and I can't really talk intelligently about any other experience. Rest assured, however, that we're pretty quickly going to get into the meat of this idea that does or that should relate to every human being on the planet. But sticking with our American theme for a moment, let me give you one example of why it is so important to me that we consider this idea and that we do so with a critical eye. Start at the beginning of the American experiment. America was born with and for freedom. Our earliest political documents codified notions of universal freedom and equality. And there's another one of those big words, right? Equality, you know, the, the kind of word that we mostly all agree with and support, but, but that we maybe don't completely, precisely understand. Uh, but surely I digress. At our founding and in our early history, the word freedom was used quite a bit. But then, as now, the word was often used without adequate consideration of what was at work in the idea. Because, as you all certainly know, for a vocal minority of American citizens throughout the better part of the first hundred years of our nation's existence, the word freedom meant, in no small part, the word freedom meant the freedom to enslave another human being. Now, this to me is among the most striking aspects of our history prior to the Civil War, that all the words and ideas that were used to justify this unjustifiable institution, freedom was there among the, most, the, one, the, among the words that you would hear most frequently as a justification for slavery. This particular, and need I say, uh, profoundly understatedly, need I say, not at all justifiable definition of freedom. Again, the, the freedom to enslave that was enshrined in our Constitution, enmeshed in our economy, and armed with such political clout that it bound the nation in what remains our most deadly and exhausting war. This particular notion of freedom was worth more than the nation itself to the people who espoused it. Which is why, to me, with a, with a concept as vital and beautiful and complex as freedom, we simply must define our terms. We have to consider what exactly we mean. We need to expose our instincts and our impulses to the open air. We need to put our, ide our ideas out in the world and see where they do and do not work. And after all that, if we end up disagreeing, we need to know as much as possible why we disagree, about what and how we disagree. And here we come to another problem, and one that is by no means limited to the consideration of freedom. Somehow we, and by, by we, by the way, I don't mean just Americans or modern Americans, I mean human beings at every stage of our recorded history. 
Somehow, we convince ourselves that questioning an important idea is the same as rejecting that idea, or at least that questioning it is, is somehow seeking, seeking to weaken it or to destroy it. Now, we've held on to some version of this notion for the better part of our history. Again, by which I mean the history of all humankind. Despite the fact, of course, that it is goofy as hell. Not only do I believe the idea of freedom can survive inquiry, I worry that the idea might not survive without it. And I'm not being entirely rhetorical here. I believe there's something about the notion of freedom, the idea itself, that thrives on discussion, on exploration, on debate. And I believe equally that the idea begins to wither, in a sense, when it becomes nothing but a reflexive talking point, a, a sort of bumper sticker for the mind. And, and maybe, that, maybe that notion, maybe what I just said, maybe that seems perfectly obvious to you, but there are specific reasons that I believe it to be true, and reasons that come back to actually what kind of thing, what kind of idea freedom actually is. Now, think of it this way. You certainly heard the expression, you are what you eat, right? It's not terribly complicated. Whether we're eating spinach or potato chips, that's the stuff that eventually turns into the physical stuff that we are made of, for better or worse. So just keep that in mind for a second, but put it on the back burner. When we think about freedom, exactly what is it? And I don't mean right now, a comprehensive definition of freedom. I more mean to ask, what kind of idea freedom is. In a way that you would say, for example, you and I are mammals. Obviously, calling you a mammal may not be a sufficient description. It's not all there is to say about you, right? And it doesn't describe who you are in your innermost soul, but it's nonetheless true. It is a necessary, but not sufficient, description of every human being. So if we apply that same kind of thinking to freedom, just trying to understand the basic category of ideas that it belongs to, it's a philosophical and linguistic genus and species, if you will. Well, how about this? Freedom is the kind of idea that is made of other ideas. It's the kind of word that is made of words. Now, what on earth am I talking about? Think of it this way, and bear with me, as I believe this is actually pretty important, and this is an idea that one way or another we're going to keep coming back to, I would assume, throughout the life of this series. So, freedom is a word, yes? Chair is also a word, right? Both freedom and chair are also ideas. But, but now, think only of chair for a moment. Within the word chair and within the idea chair, there can be a fair amount of variety, right? There can be different color chairs. There can be different style chairs, all the rest of it. But at the end of the day, if for some reason you need to explain to me what a chair is, if I've never seen a chair, if I insist that I, I just have no idea what you mean when you use the word chair... So in trying to explain it to me, you give me dictionary definitions, you talk through every example you can think of, uh, you try and do descriptions, you try and talk about your own memories of chairs, I, but I still insist, after all that, that I just have 
no idea what you mean when you say chair. Well, if all else fails, you can just go get a chair, show it to me, invite me to sit in it, and we're done. Now I understand what a chair is, right? So, to summarize, chair is a word. Chair is also an idea. But chair is a word and an idea that fundamentally refers to a thing, to an object in the, wor in the world. It's tied to that object. It's defined and made meaningful that by, by that object. And to some extent, it's limited by that object. I mean, we can't say that a chair is a hat or a chair is the stock exchange or the, a chair is Gilgamesh. However much variety exists within this idea, any exploration of the idea of chair can and likely always will come back to an actual chair. But not so with freedom, right? It isn't a thing that you can hold in your hand. It isn't something you can point to. To define freedom, you don't just pick something up and show it to me. You use, and you know, here we are, you use words. To explain the idea of freedom, you use other ideas. Freedom is an idea made of ideas. It is a word made of words. Which, in part, is why it is possible to use the idea of freedom as a means to justify slavery. Now, why? Why do I make that connection? Because you are what you eat. Because of, if an idea is made of, of ideas, if a word is made of words, we can change the fundamental nature of that word, the fundamental nature of that idea, simply by changing how we talk about it. Because if you are what you eat, this kind of idea, an idea whose only existence is in and due to other ideas, this kind of idea is, well, it is exactly and it is only what we, time, what we take the time to think that it is. And that is especially true when we don't think about it at all. You might be wondering, why do I keep saying we when talking about what we will do with this podcast? I'm not a royal. I'm not a monarch, uh, if that's what you're wondering. I'm also not a reporter. And it is just me sitting here. But I'm saying we because within the limits of this medium, I don't want this to be a one-way lecture. If the idea is to work with these living concepts, that means doing what's always been done to develop, understand, and refine important ideas. We need to pass them back and forth. We need to discuss them. We need to dissect. We need to disagree. We need to discover where one line of thinking is weak and another is strong. All by way of saying, as we're doing this, I want to hear from you. I want your feedback. I want to hear your thoughts. And my hope is that whether you agree with what I'm saying, or with what we're hearing from one of the thinkers we discuss, or with my interpretation of what that thinker was trying to say, whether you agree or not, you'll help me make this a conversation. Not that I'm not perfectly accustomed to muttering to myself alone in a room when that's what the situation calls for. But this doesn't need to be just that, right? So, as we begin, what's on the docket? Well, 
For better or worse, and this truly may be uh, just an awful marketing choice on my part, although I do believe it's a valid way to approach these ideas, to begin, we're going to start with some of the most abstract aspects of, of of the philosophical concept of freedom. We're going to start with what's called the philosophy of mind, and we're going to ask questions about how it is possible for us to be free at all how it's possible for us to make free choices, to generate new ideas, to have genuine control over ourselves and our destiny. Now, for this first conversation on the philosophy of mind, we're not going to address things like political and social freedom. We're not talking about freedom versus being locked in a cell. From a philosophical standpoint, it's important and a still widely debated question whether any human being is capable of making genuinely free choices versus just doing what we've been programmed to do by our biology, by our upbringing, by our experience, by whatever else. And that's where we're going to start because, I mean, it seems pretty important, right? If we're not actually capable of free will, if that is not a function that we have, if we can't genuinely make free choices, well, I mean, first of all, it's going to save us a lot of time with all the later episodes. But more importantly, and I'll tip my hand here to say that, of course, I firmly believe, uh, based on the the thinking of, of most of the philosophers in this field, I firmly believe that, yes, of course, we are capable of free choices. I firmly believe that we have free will. But I'm also convinced that perhaps free will doesn't work exactly the way we always assume it does, which, of course is going to have ramifications for every one of the future conversations that we want to have. Now, after those first few episodes, centered again entirely on the individual and the abstract possibility of free will, or not, we'll move into an area that I think most of you will find more instinctively sensible. We're going to talk about freedom from the social, uh, in in the social and political sphere. We'll go through some of the classics in this area. We'll talk about Mill. We'll talk about Locke. We'll talk about Rousseau uh, and probably quite a few others. We're going to talk about these guys who really laid the, uh, the groundwork, not only for the legal structures that most Westerners encounter, but our personal notions of freedom and free speech and responsibility and all the rest of it. As much as anything, for those of us raised in a Western tradition, I think we'll find that these thinkers are... Folks who kind of set our baseline, if that makes sense, who provided us with a lot of what we assume to be the fundamentals of our political and social freedom. So as you can imagine, with these folks having had so much influence over us, uh, whether we've read them or not, I should say, I think they're woven into our experience and into our assumptions, whether we've directly read them or not. So with these folks having had so much influence over us, Perhaps we want to take a nice, close, critical look and see exactly what assumptions we've been working from all this time. So if freedom is a tower in this analogy, we're going to head down to the basement, check out the foundation. And then, well, I don't know. I haven't even gotten that far yet. I assume we're going to do some Hegel. That's one thing. I, you know, I don't see why, why bother doing any of this if we're not going to get into some Hegel. I really like Hegel, and I, I think we'll get to the point you're going to like Hegel, too. And then, well, like I say, it's early yet. And I want a lot of these future choices to be informed by what you folks have to say to me. 
So I look forward to your questions. I look forward to your criticism. I look forward to you telling me what you really liked and what you really didn't, what style of show, what structure of show worked, and which ones didn't work so well. I look forward to hearing your alternate theories and ideas. And I will say, I'll do my best to respond either directly or what I'm really hoping is that we'll occasionally set up uh, sort of question and answer shows or, or just shows where we can reflect back on some of the thoughts that, that, that listeners write in with. So if you'd like to weigh in, uh, please feel free to do so at, here's an email address for you, words, that's W-O-R-D-S, words at a freedom of ideas.com. That's all one word, no dashes, no obviously no spaces. There are never spaces. So again, that's words at a freedom of ideas.com. But one last thing before we're done for today. One last uh, little ground rule here for you. For better or worse, I don't want any of you to think that your listenership, that your close attention to this podcast is going to be rewarded with anything like set, straightforward, definitive answers. The questions that we want to explore here, right, these are as old as language and society. Not only are they not susceptible of easy answers, it's actually my opinion that arriving at an answer, or that getting our tagline in place, that having the one clear, single answer, and then just closing the books, that that's exactly the opposite of what we should want from a discussion like this. Now, of course, I have opinions. Of course, I have ideas. Of course, we'll, we'll come to some conclusions. But certain questions will simply be too big for us to say we have a final answer for. And I think also too big for us really to want an answer. The search, I hope you'll agree, the search is, in fact, our goal. And with that, let's bring this introduction to a close. Next week, we'll dive in, and we'll see what happens. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs>